You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I left work early that night, around 8, and walked to Alewife Station and rode the escalator down to the platform. I tried to work the question out. Let's admit some things about video games. They are boring. They induce a state of focus that is totally absorbing but useless, like the ghost of work or creative play, but without engaging the world in any way. They're designed to focus attention, but don't really train you to overcome the obstacles to being focused. They're fun, but don't tend to make a person more interesting. The rewards are false coin. They're rarely satisfying or moving. More often, they offer something like a hunger for the next game, promising a revelation or a catharsis that they never quite fulfill, that they don't even know how to fulfill. They work in a single small corner of the emotional world, stirring feelings of anger or fear or a sense of accomplishment. They don't reach any kind of full experience of humanity. But when I thought about story, I felt I couldn't really be wrong, because when I lay awake at night, I wanted to be in a story. I wanted it so badly, it was an ache in my bones. Any story, but the story I was in of early disappointment and premature world weariness. I wanted to feel like I was at the start of a story worth being in, instead of being 28 and feeling like my story was already over, like it was the most boring, botched story imaginable. I used to love books in which somebody from our reality got to go to another world. The Narnia books, the Fionavar books. Isn't that what we could do, take people into another world? If not, why not? Why couldn't that be what we did? Austin Grossman has contributed writing and design to critically acclaimed computer games, including Deus Ex and System Shock. His first novel was Soon I Will Be Invincible. His new novel is You. Thank you for speaking with me, Austin. Thank you. This novel is so interesting because as I read it, all I could think about was story and the way it told the story of a new medium of telling stories and the way it tried to create the experience of story within the new medium of using the old medium of novels. As a writer, when you were writing this, did you have to rethink your idea of what story was? Constantly. Well, that being said, I mean, as a novelist who also works in video games, in video games you're constantly having to rethink your idea of what story is. Because you're, you're constantly in the position of telling a story, but the, the storytelling is turned on its head because the protagonist is also the reader who is also controlling the action. You just have to turn your brain inside out when it comes to story. One of the things I love about this book is the way that you give us the history of the video game and the way that you take us back in time and, and create this the world, the early world of video games. I'd like you to talk about creating the characters who were going to carry your story for you because you have a heroic quartet, not unlike the heroic quartet who carry the video games in your stories. Well, the, 
it, it, it's to some degree a, a very generational story. Uh, I was I was born in 1969, so people of, of my cohort and about a decade on on either side really felt they were growing up alongside the medium. And honestly, people people now still feel that way because frankly the medium is still in the process of growing up. But yeah, this was this was clearly generational. I was writing about how I and the the people I saw around me had somehow bonded to the computer and the idea of projecting their narrative lives into the computer as they were they were growing up. And I when I thought about the characters I, I sort of thought about in my mind about uh, the, the sort of narrative model I had for it was was that like a garage rock band. Like I had to, I, I thought about teenagers picking up instruments and learning to play them and kind of pouring their hearts out that way. And then I thought, okay, yes, that was us, but but a little differently. We we wanted we wanted we we felt so much that we wanted something uh, outside ourselves or some way to escape. But we seized on a on a different. A different device instead of the the electric guitar we seize on the uh, the Apple IIe and, and try to sort of make that sing <laughs> for ourselves. From there it was it, it was just uh, um, yeah just a matter of thinking of the different ways that people want want to play and the different kinds of people who are gravitate to to the video game as a medium and 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 what they're searching for in there. That was the the, the germ event. You know when I was reading this book it made me think. Uh, it reminded me of somebody trying to write a book 10 years after the invention of the printing press <laughs> that trying to figure out what exactly how you're going from an oral narrative of spoken tradition to uh, a book yeah I, I I know what you mean there was a, there's a there's a wrestling match going on as I try to figure out how to use how to use the book to 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 describe another medium that that's coming into into being it, it, it reminds me of a of a metaphor um, where we often talk about when we're in in the game industry I mean often the game industry is is, is compared to film right it's a big it's an intensely collaborative medium uh, it's a it's a mass market medium uh, it's one that creates an intense sense of identification so we and we talk about okay well it's like we're in the early days of film. We're we're still learning how to craft the idea of story. We're like just as film early on, gradually produced a body of craft and technique. It produced the idea of a montage and the idea of, of sort of shot reverse shot to orient the the viewer. We're producing our own storytelling craft. And then we thought, okay, but at the same time, like it's like we're trying to shoot a movie, but we're also trying to figure out how to build a projector and a movie screen and film at the same time because you're building the technology with which you're telling the story while you're telling the story. Ah, it's why video games are very exciting and very frustrating to, to, to work in. Writing the novel felt a little bit the same way because I was trying to figure out ways of representing what video games are in, in prose. In graduate school, I learned the word ekphrasis, which means the act of representing one medium in within another medium and the, <laughs> this was a sort of as ekphrastic olympics as i tried to uh do that in various ways you were dancing about architecture I, I, exactly exactly i was dancing about architecture as hard as i possibly could <laughs> there's a, a point in here early on where your character russell says there was and always will be the problem of storytelling you you and the game should wake up in a world with total choice, which is the exact opposite of a novel. Well, in some ways, I used 
I, I used to think that more, I have to say. I used to think, okay, I'm, I'm flipping back and forth between uh, making video games where I'm creating a kind environment, an environment where I give the tools to somebody else to, to sort of have their story. And then, in, in, then I go home at night and I try to write a novel and then I'm having it all my own way. You know, I have to say, it's less that way than I thought. Talking to readers of Soon I Will Be Invincible, for instance, like there are huge fans of Fatal. You know, there are huge fa fans of the the, as it turns out, sort of non-marquee character, right? The, the novel has two narrators, right? So some some people just they just like they just like Fatal, the the, the cyborg character who alternates with Doctor Impossible, even though the reviews only ever talk about Doctor and Doctor Impossible. Um, people have a kind of, you know, once you hand a book to somebody, it. it They've got the book, and, and they can tell, kind of tell themselves the story their own way. They can invest in the characters that they like. Um, they they can, uh, you know, they can imagine characters uh, uh, their own way. So I have to say, the experience of writing you has has taught me that games and novels are actually closer than I thought they were, because again, once you once it's in the hands of the customer, they they read it their own way. Uh, that was my. Uh, that was my lesson. <laughs> That's an interesting observation because one of the joys of books, as especially as opposed to movies of books, is in books. Once we immerse ourselves in the books, we're the right, we're the direct, we're not the writer, but we're director, producer, uh, special effects team, and we control all that stuff so you know you're you're absolutely right which is and i think that's an interesting observation well if you've ever heard an author read from their own work as you have earlier in this interview you know that you know 99% of the time that my first thought is he's reading it wrong that's not how the character talks and that's that's a demonstration of how much you you own the experience of reading right which uh, i think is a great thing about the novel one of the things that this book has all over it is notions of free will and actual choice versus apparent total choice as we enter this medium. And, and I really like that you're able to write a story that has engaging characters, a great plot arc, and a lot of you know interesting action going on, yet it simultaneously really engages the reader at this other level, thinking about um, stuff like free will and what's plot and what's story. Yeah, I have to say, uh, people who, I mean, people are really, really passionate about the medium of the video game. And I have to say, even a non-gamer, once you lure them into a little bit of discussion and thought about how story uh, works and what video games tell us about what story is, like everybody seems to become a, a, a narrative philosopher in that point. So uh, I put the reins on it as, as much as I could. But the characters do talk about what the act of trying to tell a story is and what that means to them. Because uh, God, if you're a, if you're a novel reader, you care you care about story. And, uh, and what it means to be in the middle of one. So I, I didn't mind letting the characters grapple with that a little bit just because it's, it's, a, it's a universal. And it's, it's one of the questions that um, the technology of video games, it's a question that, that, techn that technology kind of thrusts on us, that it, it pushes into our lap because we, we, uh, we're, we're learning new answers to that question. As you were 
writing this novel talk a little bit about just re recreating those halcyon days of of high school, which as you say, there's a great line in here, high school fills the uh, Russell with terror, right? which I think is, uh, that's not an unfamiliar feeling. Yeah, high school, no one wanted to say it was terrifying. So. High, high school was terrifying. I mean, I'm sure that there are people for whom it was not terrifying. And they they may, I don't know, turn the volume down at this point or, or busy themselves elsewhere as I discuss this point. Uh, I, I remember high school as, as terror. Uh, actually, a lot of people who who are very smart, who I talk to, remember high school as being kind of boring because they felt, oh, the the work is not, it's not so, it's it's not it's not challenging. I just remember it just being terrifying. As, as it was like, you know, it was walking an invisible maze like full of razor blades. Like it just, I was always going to do something wrong. I it was, uh, and the consequences were going to be terrible. Uh, that that was one thing that brought me to to video games because it was a kind of safe space. Ironically, I. Video games are often mazes full of razor blades, but they are a kind of safe place to model that experience and uh, kind of process it at, at, at one, one remove. Let's talk about creating these four different characters who are kind of the core of the story. Your storyteller is, to a certain extent, when it's not you, the reader, <laughs> or you, the gamer, it's Russell. Uh, tell us a little bit about creating Russell, who is the most, I think, normative, normal of the characters. Wow, Russell isn't meant to be the most normal character. Um, but okay, Russell is the, most straight, is the most straightforwardly autobiographical character because like, okay, let's, I mean, let's for a moment tear away the veil and say that, you know, I graduated from college in 1992, no idea what I was going to do. And I answered an ad in the newspaper and I went to work at, uh, at uh, uh, Looking Glass Techno Technologies. Um, or Looking Glass Studios as it, as it became, uh, which was a kind of seminal video game studio that, that lasted into the, the late 90s. So Russell is, is, Russell is the autobiographical character here because he's stumbling into that world, that sort of intense, uh, strange world of video game development and learning the ropes and sort of becoming kind of excited and sort of reawakened by that because I think at the beginning of the, of the, of the book, Russell is totally lost and he's, he's totally exhausted and he tried to go to law school and it didn't stick and this is the place in the adult world where he learns to find himself. He also tells the story and he's the voice of the book. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about creating his prose voice and the many prose voices of this book because much of the book is written in the second person which is a challenge. Tell us about writing the impossible passages in this book. Well I was Im emboldened by and then we came to the end the Joshua Ferris novel which was written in the first person plural and then I thought to myself all right you know what we can do this we can get weird if we need to and I mean clearly the the model for that second person pro voice was the second person voice of games of text adventures of game manuals and, and you know Dungeons and Dragons you know the pros in, in a game is always you know you know you walked into a room and there's a, a desk and there's a, a falcon on the desk. And what is your response? You know, you are lost in a maze of twisty passages. It's always you. It's, this, it's that second person voice. So I started to get fascinated by that voice. And I started to think to my, uh, it's always been fascinating. And, and, and then the repetition of you and like, who are you? You know, <laughs> who is the person in, inside that, that sort of hollow pronoun? It became a, a fascinating point of view from which to write. And... Um, and and it's a it's a challenging 
it's a challenging sort of pronoun because it's always throwing the story back on the reader. Uh, I offered at one point to change the, the working title with you, and I offered to change that. And I, I, I think that the question went all the way up to Michael Peach at the head of, of, of Little Brown, um, uh, busy as he was reconstructing The Pale King. And he said, he said to keep it, and so we are keeping it. Because it is cool and awesome and challenging, and it does evoke the feel and the voice of gaming. It also sends most of my interviews into a kind of like a, a spinal tap deleted scene space <laughs> where we try to figure out where where we're talking whether we're talking about each other or the book but that's you know what that's part of the the challenge anyway so yes i got experimental with that voice and i integrated it into the into the voice of the novel which swaps around and it is it's a novel told by one person but it is a many voice novel because i started bringing in the video game characters themselves and letting them talk uh, i had a really good time <laughs> and, it, it, it seems like it <laughs> and you know, this is a, maybe a time to talk a little bit about the texture of this novel, which despite its many inclusions of worlds of the fantastic that you explore at, in various modes and various levels, is pretty much a gritty, grounded novel about here and now and the way we live now, as opposed to your first novel, Soon I Will Be Invincible, which was had this wonderful... Uh, a fantastic reworking of the world, and I'd like you to talk about just turning your own work on its head. That was, it was a strange, it was strange to write this second novel. My first novel was set in a world where I could make things up as I went along. It was set in a, in, in a sort of rich, old universe of superheroes, and it, it, it mimicked the feeling of it, of the, the, the continuity of DC or, 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 or Mar Marvel Comics, um, where you could just you could just make stuff up endlessly. And you know what? Like, not all of like God, in that first book, like the weather, the weather, the season of the year isn't really consistent from scene to scene. And I didn't track it, and no one has ever ever called me on it because I know I'll just say that it was time travel, and so forth. Uh, the second one was, uh, it was realistic and it, it was autobiographical. And I actually had to make a chart of what happened in the years 1997 and 1998. It's, it's interesting that people refer to it as a present-day novel. It, it is set in 90, 1998, mostly. Um, but I think it's more attentive to technological realities, so it feels more present than a lot of other novels. But anyway, yes, uh, uh, it is set in the real world, and that was challenging. And at some point, I had to like look, look in the mirror, and I said, Austin, you know, are you telling me you can only do this when there's people in capes flying around? Like, you, are you telling me you can't make it work in the real world? So you're gonna have to you're gonna have to try. So yes, that was a weird moment. Writing a second novel, you're a fool if you think because you've written one novel you know how to write novels. You you don't. <laughs> Going to the second novel meant meant relearning the craft, and I think I would probably distrust anybody who didn't have to do that because novels are hard and challenging. Uh, a medium. It's a hard and challenging medium to write in, um, and uh, wow, you you just create new problems for yourself as you try to tra grapple with new thoughts and, and 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 new settings. One of the things I really loved about this novel was your all your explorations of the uh, pseudo tech. Tolkienian worlds that you create and that the gamers create in the science fiction worlds and the heroes' adventures. And what I really loved is that you play those at different levels very subtly. Some of them are somewhat satiric and kind of 
uh, very lighthearted. Others, you'll let, like let more poignant moments kind of bleed in from the real world. And I love that way you kind of modulate the tone of these different uh, explorations of the fantastic worlds in the guise of the video characters. Talk about uh, experiencing and exploring those modulations. Well, it's funny. I was, I mean, I was mimic, mimicking, mimicking the way tone is all over the place in video games themselves, which are constantly sliding from a kind of high uh, Tolkienian uh, seriousness to an, an, an absurdity, right? I, the first game I worked on was set in the, uh, the Ultima universe, right? Which was the Ultima games by Richard Garriott, by Origin Systems. They're classic role-playing games. And they, you know, they would so often have that sort of knockoff high fantasy self-seriousness, right? Where everything was, you know, was, was an incredibly urgent moral issue and there are these villagers in trouble and you have to help them. But like video games, because they, they're always this kind of broken, inadequate simulation of a fictional world, like the absurdity was always just constantly intruding it, you know? I remember watching somebody, you know, he's, he's, he's got his wizard friend trailing him around and he was walking around the world and he was just picking up anvils from like blacksmiths and just handing them to the wizard. And he's, he's just loading this wizard up with, with anvils. And, you know, a world that allows you to do that has no right to take itself as seriously as the Ultimate Series tends to do. So I, I wanted to bring that experience uh, across because it's funny and it's because it's because it's what vi video games are like if you're if you're walking around constantly you know pretending that video games are always this incredibly cool emotional uh, experience then 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 you're not convincing because they are uh, by turns boring and absurd and hilarious and also to totally uh, moving you just I, I was just trying to in include all of those those shades to it. Um, I mean, to say nothing of, of, of the, probably my, whatever, my favorite bits in the book, which is where the high fantasy characters are sent off to go to go play golf. I was um, going to just mess <laughs> I loved Realms of Golf. I thought was, well, wow, brilliant. Was there a Realms of Golf? <laughs> well, I mean, I took it from like, you know, there's like Mario Golf, right? Whereas the Super Mario characters run off and they play golf. And now they're playing golf and it's like Bowser is there and he's playing golf with Luigi. And it's like, doesn't no one know that Bowser is, you know, a serial kidnapper? Like someone do something. And no, they're just gonna play they're just gonna play golf. Or like the skateboarding scene. Right. <laughs> where yeah. they're shredding it. I'm just like it's so I mean, hilarious. It is hilarious. And it's funny and it's it's a kind of it's a it's a situation that only happens in video games. And I was thinking of yeah, what was it, you know? God, Super Smash Brothers, right? It's just this Nintendo you know, franchise, and they they're a franchise, and they have they all they have all their IP. They have Zelda, they have Mario, and like they have Pokemon, right? And they just mash them all into one fighting game, and they have to fight each other. And then Princess Peach is fighting Pokemon. Why? It's um, and no one, no, I mean, no one, no one even bothers to try to explain why that why that's happening. But it's funny. It's funny if you have the kind of mind that is driven driven to try. Uh, and that's what video games are like. They can't be solemn. You can't claim that they're that they're always one thing or, thing or, or or another. They so mash story up in in odd and absurd ways, and you have to you have to follow that. One of the passages I really loved was where Russell and Lisa were talking about uh, games like Doom, and and where I I think it's a uh, Lisa who said story 
sucks. <laughs> because in Doom, there's, I mean, it's just the, the appeal of Doom is actually, if I'm not mistaken, the lack of story. Right, or the fact that the story is there. I mean, the story is there, but it sits, just sits very lightly on the experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and they found they found the sweet spot. They found the right the right level of story, the right amount of story. The John Carmack programmer uh, on on Doom, you know, once apocryphally said, you know, <clears throat> do you want story on your pizza? And that that made me think to myself that there are some experiences that simply do not require story, and you know, our, our rush to take ourselves serious as a medium has caused us to load story onto things where it simply doesn't belong. At the time that they were making Doom, I was making games called, you know, uh, Ultimate Underworld 1 and 2 and, and System Shock, and, and those are terrific games. But uh, I have to say, like, Doom was a lot more popular, and I had to sit down and look and figure out why. They added story in just, just the light brushing of story, like a sort of brushing of sauce onto some meat dish, and they did it right. You know, one of the things that's so interesting about this book is the real, uh, the the prickly and uh, fascinating feel you have for the business world of gaming. And I love the scenes, the 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 build up to E3, and especially the demos, <laughs> which is just this is hysterical. Is this based on personal experience? It's. I mean, it's based on, you know, I, I did go on YouTube for a while and just just searched for, like, worst E3 demos, and you can find some some pretty awesome ones. Not, none that fall apart quite so spectacularly, but, like, you you know in the audience that that's what you want. You want you want the demo to break, and that's that's what's going to be, that's what's going to be um, funny. Because, yeah, people get up there to, to the, do their demo for, for Sony or for Microsoft, and... And, 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 you know, when, whenever somebody goes to, to play the game in real time and then they're, they're on a huge sta stage with a screen like 50 feet high, um, you, know, you know, millions of people are watching around the world, man, you want them to screw up. You want some, some funny, weird bug to happen and for, uh, for, for it all to go wrong. And I, I, I took that scenario and, and I pushed it as far as I, as I thought I could. Well, one of the things, too, that springs up uh, a character to a degree in here, the bug, and there's a bug in this system, and this comes from the very nature of the system. At the at the core of everything that drives the video games in this novel is a technology called Waffle, uh, created by a character who's actually never present in the story exactly, Simon. So I'd like you to talk about creating Simon, creating Waffle, and what you call, and this makes it uh, the seem you bring us uh, an element of science fiction, fantasy, magic into this book, completely successful in one phrase, a code forged by a now alien cognitive self. Right. Uh, Waffle is this kind of world sim simulator uh, algorithm that this character Simon created when he was creating, when they were all creating their, their first computer game together in high school, and Simon is the character who has this kind of has the kind of quality of, of genius to him. There's a sort of light science fictional element to you, which is that like his world simulator is is just too uncannily good and complex and 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 rich to really to really actually exist. Although it's something that I feel like we're all pushing for. So Simon wrote these sort of algorithms in high school that that like that that that, that simulate the kind of the the uh, physical and economic 
realities of this of this fantasy world. And his code is 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 so uh, good and also so dense that they've just been reusing it in in all of their games since and 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 porting it from language to language without really understanding what it does. And then Simon died, uh, and so they're they're stuck with this code that they're using and that they don't understand and they can't figure out how to replace. And now they realize that the code has a bug, which is this really odd weapon, and it takes different forms, but it, it is this sort of, uh, it, it is this un, un, unbeatable weapon that they call Mornblade. And it just shows up in the simulation, and different characters in the world randomly pick it up, and when they pick it up, they start murdering everything around them, and then the game that you happen to be playing just goes to crap. You know, it happens once every couple of thousand playthroughs, but of course it happens during this E3 demo, inevitably, and hilarity uh, ensues. I, I love the Mornblade, and I love the science fiction references in this novel. You you name-check Dream Park, Neuromancer, of course, and Michael Moorcock, I think. And, and what's really interesting, I think, and you point this out, is that how seminal his fiction is to this world, the world of gaming, because his whole multiverse where you have the same hero playing out different roles in every time and space imaginable is essentially the core of every video game in the universe. <laughs> but And of course Mornblade comes from Stormbringer. I'd like you to talk about the import of science fiction and the part it plays in this novel because this is a book in which science fiction is the character, but not necessarily the nature of the story. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a complicated question, but yeah, the um, the the imaginations of, of of people who who make video games are are steeped in science fiction, and particularly science fiction of, of a certain period of the of the sort of sixties and seventies, sort of. Uh, uh, I don't know if we call it gold or silver age science fiction, but anyway, the, uh, people like people like Michael Moorcock, who of course you know sort of imbibed very heavily of of, of Joseph Campbell and the kind of monomyth sort of uh, hero's journey. That sort of that stuff is 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 is, is plugged straight into the way straight into the way that that video game narratives are constructed. Uh, I, I think probably the game industry is is at this point sort of a little bit too much enthralled to a hero's journey monomyth. Um, I guess you're lucky that uh, Borcock isn't as uh, litigious as uh, Harlan Ellis. Yeah, you know, <laughs> you know, I I assumed that at some point someone someone publisher publisher side was going to stop me from doing that if I shouldn't be doing that. At this point, if Borcock sues me, I will shake the man's hand because that will be my opportunity to do that. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I think is that you do very well is to create a fictitious video game company. And this is a whole, you create a whole mythology of the video game company, the characters, you give us kind of splash screens, uh, narratives, video games, examples, user experiences. This is a very interesting uh, fiction within a fiction. And one of the things that, that's really nice is that even though it's very, quote, metafictional, it never feels that way. You just, it's kind of the world in which you're grounded. Well, I mean, this was, this, this again was, it's not a Romana Clef, exactly, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, I mean, I did work in a small, critically acclaimed video game studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the mid-90s. So, honestly, I, 
I dragged in a lot of detail uh, from that, uh, not just because it was realistic, but because for me, and I think a lot of the people who worked at that company at that time, it was just a really powerful experience in their in our our lives. Like there was a kind of shared culture and sense of, of mission and and uh, kind of uh, intellectual ferment that was going on for us as, as we worked together on these games and, and in the act of kind of inventing what the medium was going to be and a lot of us lived together in the same house and we a lot of us had, had sort of just gotten out of college and were sort of finding ourselves it was there was a really powerful e experience for that that group of us and uh, the people I worked with at the time have since kind of spread out through the industry after the uh, the company went bust. People f who I worked with at Looking Glass, they went on. They created Xbox. They created Guitar Hero and Rock Band. They are kind of uh, they they kind of uh, seeded themselves everywhere. And you can you can hear some of the vocabulary that we coined uh, to talk about how games made you know kind of e echoing uh, in, in in different uh, uh, in d different companies kind of internal internal dialogues. So I was reprodu reproducing what I what. I, something I stumbled into, but which was a sort of small but powerful kind of cultural moment, my own sort of personal like 20s expat Paris moment. And uh, I tried to kind of uh, you know, recreate that in the book so that people could feel like the, the excitement and, and, and the passion. I think people, people outside the game industry think of games as sort of toys or kind of as very sort of formulaic narratives, but man, people inside them, people care about that stuff so, so very, very much. Um, that I, I, I wanted to make people who were reading the, the book uh, uh, feel that clearly. You really do, and that's, I think, one of the wonderful experiences of this is to read some one form of storytelling that tells the story of the birth of another form of storytelling, which is, I think, it, it's a really miraculous kind of observation. Um, that was certainly the, the challenge of it. Uh, uh, I have to say, um, it's a, it was definitely a, a, a story uh, worth telling, uh, and I was inspired. Well, I was inspired by a bunch of other books. I was inspired by you know I read you know, Microsurfs. I had read uh, Ellen Ullman, uh, you know, Close to the Machine, and Bug. I had read Stephen Levy's like Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution, and I felt like so powerfully that they were. Uh, and, and, and the Stephen Levy books, you know, tells the story of, of um, the people making Space War, uh, which was one of, the, one of the very first games, literally one of the very first, you know, computer games ever, ever constructed back in M MIT in the 60s. Uh, I loved reading those stories. I loved reading, reading how a community comes together to, to, to build a new art form. And then I, you know, I had gotten swept up in, up in that process myself. It, it seemed like the kind of a book I had to write. You know, what's interesting, too, is that you observe that even in their most rudimentary forms, when you're just looking at uh, alphanumeric uh, characters on a screen mapping out a, a maze out of X's and slashes and asterisks and ampersands, that the human mind is so um, encompassed and possessed by story that we put story there. Um, yeah, well, w one of the things you, you learn when you're working in computer games is that the technology, the graphics technology is getting, getting better every, every year. Uh, and you, um, but the, the, the experience of, of finding a, a powerful narrative in, in, in a video game is, turns out to be kind of technology independent, I have to say. People had 
really powerful experiences playing the text adventures in the in the in the seventies and eighties. You know the 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 eight bit uh, kind of uh, iconic cartoonic cartoonist style of games in the in in the eighties has has its own powerful power. Like a game can be kind of beautiful and sort of aesthetically fully realized uh, without necessarily having having uh, photorealistic graphics. That 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 is a, a thing you learn that that's, that te- that technology that story uh, uh, floats. Um, <laughs> Uh, and uh, can can be is a, an effect that can be evoked w- w- without a high res graphics card. <laughs> well, what you say I think is really interesting is that it must be possession that the, the user the user is possessed by the story and the character. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I think that's right. I think something of that is is evoked in the in the in the the cover design. I have to say, uh, the U has a really terrific cover and and. And it, it it seems in my mind, and this is like my own story that I attach to it, to kind of depict that moment of possession where 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 a human being, a human being's mind somehow becomes uh, uh, takes hold of a of a of a video game character. I think that that's a that's a pretty decent metaphor for uh, um, for that that weird merger. And, and I have to ask you about something that you, one of the things I love is that kind of the details that drive the plot and I love the idea of a plot clock that's just <laughs> that's a brilliant idea even for books that's a that's a term of art that that actually I did encounter when I went to work in in, in games because we had this piece of code that governed where we were in the story and they said yeah that's the plot clock and I'm like plot clock I understand what that phrase means you don't even need to explain it any further that's what that is <laughs> and, and speaking of working one of the things is book is does a beautiful job of is to encapsulate the American working experience where it does not matter how qualified how many degrees you have for a job it doesn't matter you walk into a new place and you're pretty much unqualified and your first reaction is oh my god I, I shouldn't be doing this job yes that was certainly my 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 feeling when I started in games I think it's it's easier in games because no one no one actually knows how to make what make make video games. Where the medium is coming to be into being around us, so it, it, it's actually it, it, it's 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 interesting and scary to walk into video games into a video game company and and nobody's trained for the task that 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 we are we are trying to accomplish. That is one of the the thrills of it. And you also capture, I think, a very another very common work experience, uh, what's called the uh, imposter effect, when, uh, when you feel like I'm, I'm a fake. Right, imposter syndrome. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that that yeah, that gets talked about a lot. I mean, that's tr- that must be true of any any workplace. It certainly gets talked about a lot in in video games, where some in the industry where I think some people bring a lot of swagger to it. Right, some people kind of cast themselves as as. As as game gods who have the secret of game design, or or sort of, you know, computers seem to lend themselves more than other industries to the sort of myth of genius, right? And the, the some people sort of really conceive themselves as sort of genius programmers, and that that for the rest of us, I think that 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 sets off a feeling that we're we're imposters because we're you know the ideas aren't magically coming to me. I, I must be an imposter. <laughs> How much did your experience as a video game designer uh, interfere with, inform, uh, inflate your ability to write this novel? Well, I knew 
I had read a bunch of books about video games. I had read Ready Player One. I had read uh, Reamd. Uh, I had read uh, uh, Microsurfs, which has a kind of gamey product. Like I felt like I had, I felt like I had a story to tell. I think when I, I think I, I went to work in games in like '92 when they were much more of a sort of hobbyist sort of uh, niche thing to do. And then the 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 medium itself be kind of in, 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 erupted into an industry and, and, and into an, an art form. And I gradually had the idea that like, wow, I had the opportunity to actually be in place while it was happening. So I could like, I could tell this story with a certain amount of uh, authenticity. Um, it was something that in the, in, the, in the midst of it, I kind of, I had to remind myself, I said, uh, you know, I, I said, I had to remind myself, you know, Austin, you know, at this story kind of is yours to tell. Like, you were actually, you were actually there. And so you may be doing a terrible, like, flawed job of it, but you have the right to try. And it, it seemed important that somebody try, because video games are, are a big deal now. They're, they're billions of dollars. There's a huge audience. I don't feel like people know very much about how video games are are made like I don't think people see in inside a, a video game studio very often uh, it seems like an, a, a worthwhile story to to, to represent well, it's a, yeah, as you point out uh, bigger than movies yeah I don't even know if they're bigger than movies <laughs> I think you would have to go around and add up a lot of different different dollars and cents to actually figure that out but it was it's a fun thing to claim, and no one can instantly disprove it. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna run with that. <laughs> uh, when you put together this novel, did you have to put together? There's you do a great job of weaving in different timelines, different stories, different uh, levels of the games, moving back and forth through the characters' lives. Uh, it all comes together very seamlessly. I, I can't imagine it necessarily went together quite so seamlessly, or did it? I would say that that no, it did not. Uh, uh, I, my roommates at the time could describe the experience of watching me print the novel out and put different pages into different piles and walk around those piles and glare at them. Like... That's what that looked like from the outside. This was a big challenge formally because God, they were there are actually a whole bunch of different stories like locked up inside that book. That was it's that amazing. Was, I love that. That was tricky. Uh, um, that was tricky. Tricky. The book did come in a little bit after deadline, but that's all right. <laughs> I think so. It came we, out wonderfully. We took the time we needed. Thank you. No, I, I think that one of the real pleasures of this book is the way that it makes us think about stories and the way it gives us story after story just woven in and echoes back. It's, I, I mean, it's a, an echo chamber for story in all its many forms and strengths. I, I think, yeah, you know what? I mean, I, I also think, think, think that's right it's it, it started you know it started generating its little stories the stories you know in, inside the games the stories of the characters in, in each of the games the stories of the different employees at the game company it, the, the sto the, that was when I, I started to feel like that the book was going to be okay and and was was being done 
was perhaps being being done right when I when I started to, to when it started to sort of team with with its smaller stories then I started to feel okay about it <laughs> I think you can certainly feel okay about it can you tell me what you're working on now uh, I can actually I'm working because I don't know how to to build a self brand I'm working on something totally different which is an a sort of an espionage story set in the Cold War starring Richard Nixon and uh, I'm, uh, I'm about halfway done you should actually see it next year I'm looking forward to it that <laughs> sounds like a lot of fun I've been speaking with Austin Grossman his newest novel is You thank you for joining me Austin thank you very much You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.